Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Creepy crypt keeping wizard Holden McNeely. <laughs> and I'm the vault keeper, Bruiser Jake. What is that for a vault keeper? Nobody impression? remembers the vault keeper. It's all crypt creeper this, crypt creeper that, bordello of blood. Fucking. <laughs> bordello of blood is awesome. The vault keeper was there the whole time. And don't even get me started on the old witch. The old witch was valid. Where's the old witch love? But no, it's fucking cool 90s creepkeeper Look, I tried to have lording s- over the conversation. I tried to have some old witch love, and I woke up naked in a hotel room in Tijuana. So that's enough old witch love for me. By the way, uh, this uh, topic has warped my young, impressionable mind. Now I uh, hang out with greaser gangs and get into knife fights and uh, smoke unfiltered cigarettes. Jake. That's right. Not nice filtered cigarettes. That will that will keep me alive forever. Gross, <laughs> bad boy, unfiltered cigarettes. Uh, really quick, this is a Patreon sponsored episode from Zach Berger. I don't have a promotion here, so I hope I'm not fucking that up. Zach, thank you so much for this episode because honestly, I was just saying to Jake before we started, I'm like, this is like the story of comic books. Is is the story of EC Comics in so many bizarre ways, at least up to the 1960s, uh, essentially. And I'm so, I learned so much this week, and I hope that you guys learned so much this week as well. This is EC Comics, or Entertaining Comics. Uh, This is a wild tale of uh, mass censorship and bloody headless women and, uh, you know, true war stories and uh, political outrage about racism in in comic books. This is essentially... A, if the government hadn't gotten involved, I feel like comic books would have been very different today oh, all absolutely. because of EC Comics there is, and what they were doing. No, you can literally, the Comics Code Authority was put into place because of EC Comics. There's a reason why there was like the Golden Age, like some weird shit in the 50s, and then, the, and then Silver Age and Bronze Age and all that after that. Like, it's also the, mad fucking magazine. Oh, like, I guess. There's okay, so I guess. many crazy origin stories wrapped up in this one tale of EC Comics. So for me personally, I, I didn't read like m- much of this stuff. I, I definitely watched Tales from the Crypt, 
on HBO. You jacked it to Weird Science when yes. you were 12 years old. Of course. Both the movie and the TV show. <laughs> Um, I definitely read Mad Magazine when I was a kid. Uh, You've heard good things about Creepshow on Shudder, but haven't actually <laughs> taken the time to watch it because, you know, you're kind of, yeah, when you get in your 30s, time, time becomes precious. Yeah, all of those things, but I really didn't read really any of EC Comics. I definitely, it's definitely one of those things that was always in the background or being parodied or <laughs> something like that, right? And, uh, or, or I was, re I was enjoying the entertainment that was the full evolution of, years in the future of what EC laid down um, the foundation for. Uh, what, what about you? I mean, did you... I, I know we both crammed on some EC this oh my week, God. and I that was awesome. read so many goddamn EC comics. Uh, so, growing up as a comic book nerd, as someone that, like, you know, uh, kept track of artists and collected books and, you know, felt himself a connoisseur, the story of EC comics and Frederick Wortham and the seduction of the innocent is a almost mythological battle of, you know, uh, David and Goliath that has been uh, part of the comic book industry's lore for so long. But I never actively sought out what EC Comics was actually about. I never really understood that story besides this weird, vaguely European boogeyman and the Senate, you know, decency committee. And reading these comics, seeing this history played out, it was kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. First of all, the comics themselves are so weirdly good and yeah. pulpy yeah. and awful at the same time. Mm -hmm. Either because this is the work of like young artists kind of given free reign. They have, you know, so many pages to fill across so many titles that they just let their mind go bonkers. There's a there's a story I read in. Uh, I think this was not weird science, probably Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror or one of the other ones where it was like. There was this evil fireman. He was a bad fireman. He would start fires and let it burn. And, and then all of a sudden, he, he heard a ghost of one of his victims. And he was like, oh, and the ghost was like, ooh, you piece of shit. You goddamn asshole fireman. And the fireman was like, no, no, please don't. Ah. And in his terror, he jumps down the fire pole only to discover that the fire pole has been replaced with a razor-sharp steel blade, and it cuts him to pieces. <laughs> Lots of surprise endings and twists. Uh, we're primarily dealing in, dealing in war stories, horror stories, noir tales. Oh, God. And, there's and, an issue and, of, and parody with Mad. Uh, there was an issue of Weird Science, which is amazing. This is, first of all, I'm blowing so much... Uh, idea juice already. Oh, please cover my whole face in your idea <laughs> juice, Jake. I just, I need it all. Oh. Uh, like the movie and TV show, so much of Weird Science is literally just a story of some guy either inventing, finding, or creating the perfect woman. <laughs> so in one story, a guy falls to a planet where, like, all the people live in these little igloos. And uh, one of the first igloos he finds, a beautiful hot blonde bombshell emerges. And he's like, my God, hello, you you beautiful thing. And she's like, you're cute, want to get married? He's like, but I'm from Earth, a different place. And she's like, I don't know, here you could be king. We can have kids, it'll be great. And he's like, my God, she's so much more agreeable than those loud Earth dames. <laughs> so he decides to stay. And then, horrifyingly, he realizes his new wife is beginning to change and she doesn't return his affections and her face is getting stubblier and he runs out and realizes those weren't igloos 
Those were shells. These aren't people. These are snail people. And how do snails reproduce? Hermaphroditism. <laughs> and his beautiful wife is now a chiseled blonde guy. <laughs> and he's like, oh, shit, no. Ah, oh, damn, gay panic. And the uh, former beautiful alien snail woman is like, hey, Rex, uh, when are you going to change into a chick? Otherwise, it's going to get weird. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a wild uh, yarn of tales that were completely different from what was going on on the other side of things was the superhero stories and mm-hmm. we're dealing in the same characters every issue we're dealing with you know good versus evil in this very specific way whereas uh, EC is off in the corner just trying to throw as many insane stories at you as possible with completely different characters. Uh, every time and just saw these stories of murder and aliens and all, all sorts of things. Another thing that EC Comics did really well was the idea of the horror host, which if I did my research correctly, stuff like Vampira and mm-hmm. like the ghoul, like Groovy Ghoulie, Sven yeah, yeah. all the ideas of uh, a television horror host came after EC Comics. Mm-hmm. Those were all like uh, 1960s television shit, whereas... In the pages of the comics of Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt, the Crypt Keeper would be the first thing you saw and be like, hello there, I have a tale of a man who wanted to rub out his his wife, but it turns out the only thing he rubbed out was his chance at salvation from Jesus. <laughs> I don't think they got preachy. That was before they switched to horror. They did have more morality in there, though, um, for sure. And speaking of morality, I love that this all came from wanting to do comic books about the bible <laughs> things like that just so weird and i guess that's our entry entry point to our story which is max Gaines. max Gaines, who was born in new york city to a jewish family uh asked me if you've heard this one before he started out as a teacher and an elementary school principal as well as munitions factory worker and haberdasher which is gentleman's clothes i had to look up haberdasher every time i see him like what that is just such an ancient word now in my head he's putting little hats on missiles (laughs) i thought it was something with fish little hats on missiles i thought i was teaching fish how to sing it's actually uh gentleman's clothing is haberdashery i I thought hat i thought hat oh is it hat i thought it was just general gentleman's clothing well milliner makes gloves if i remember ah Uh, so uh, before becoming a salesman at Eastern Color Printing, which is going to be his intro into publishing, and that put out the Sunday newspaper comic strips. And he came up with the idea of packaging these strips together for promotional publications. Uh, uh, from for- what I heard, it's okay. not only did he come up with the idea of just selling the comics pages separately, but he was the one who invented the idea of folding the Sunday comics pages in half uh-huh. and creating a full-sized booklet with double the pages. Yes. So like the idea, the form factor of comic book, the co- comic book, you hold it in your hands. It's not the Sunday paper. It's not the, no, no, no. It's not a comic strip. It is a comic book. Yes. Can be traced to this guy. And the company Procter & Gamble, because it was, he's a sales guy and he's just like, how do I... How do I just move more units for Procter & Gamble? What if we made a big advertisement-oriented uh, Just the Comic Books booklet? And mm. that is that is where it all came from. He reprinted multiple comic strips from earlier Sunday newspapers and sent it out as a promotional item to customers that mailed in coupons for Procter & Gamble products. 
And this 10,000 print run proved so successful, it quickly evolved into further promotions with 100,000 to 250,000 print runs. That's like a huge, huge growth. Literally, the birth of comics was just the result of a paper salesman who needed to move more product. Yes, 100%. And a mean paper salesman <laughs> as, as chance would have it. Uh, he apparently was just like, he had some weird leg injury. He like fell on a fence when he was young and he had a leg injury. He was already a cranky person. It added to his disposition. He apparently was pretty difficult to work with. So he ends up collaborating with Dell and he puts out a 36 page one shot called Famous Funnies, A Carnival of Comics. <laughs> and then what is considered the first true American comic book, Famous Funnies, which ran for 218 issues. And from there, Gaines worked with National Allied Publications. This is the precursor to DC Comics. Uh, he worked with the co-owner, Jack Leibowitz, to publish comics under all American publications. And they're putting out superhero comics such as Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman, and uh, notably Wonder Woman during the golden age of comic books. This is, this is actually, apparently it was Gaines who, like, through a connection with his personal assistant, uh, turned down Superman from Jerry from Siegel and Schuster and ended up pitching it to National. Mm. Again, just another weird uh, thing where he was the focal point in the development of comics. Yes, it's nuts. And this, so, but he's, like I said, difficult to work with. Their relationship gets t uh, tumultuous and um, he gets bought out so that National and All American Comics could eventually merge and become, at some point down the line, DC Comics. Gaines felt personally that the superhero trend was going to wane soon, and he felt that children's books and magazines would be a safer bet moving forward. So in 1944, he let Leibowitz buy him out, keeping only picture stories from the Bible as the basis for his new publication company, Educational Comics, or EC. Um, and then added new, new titles such as Picture Stories from American History and later humor books such as Land of the Lost, Animal Fables, and Fat and Slat. Some of <laughs> I'm sorry, what the fuck did you call me? <laughs> look, Jake, I'm just saying fat and slat. And you want to go, you fucking piece of shit? Yeah, I want to go. I will body slam you to the concrete like you were made of peanut brittle. This and then I will eat the peanut brittle for unrelated food issues. This podcast is no longer called Where's the Bruiser? It's called Friday Night Fights. It's literally just Jake and I getting into a room talking shit for a half an hour. And then the sounds of us wrestling. Um, <laughs> you turd. For, well, say, hey, Hogan, don't waste a million dollar idea like that on the free feed. Let's, let's save that for the Patreon bonus. <laughs> um, so uh, these these featured uh, actually some of these featured the funny ones or the humor books featured a slightly revised publisher logo with entertaining comics as the insignia. In 1947, at 53 years old, Gaines was on a motorboat in Lake Placid, New York, with his friend Sam Irwin and Irwin's eight-year-old son when they were struck by a motorboat, and Gaines and Sam Irwin were killed. And that's where... Supposedly, Gaines died saving the kid. Oh. Which I only uh, read in a single account uh, <laughs> in a blog with no sources. So that's probably not true at all. It might be true. I will say, though, that Max Gaines had a son, and his son was named William. And William had a definitely difficult childhood. He w described Max as a hard-nosed, panic-racked, loud, aggressive man who, as a boy, like I said, suffered that fall. He had lifelong pain and discomfort in his legs, and one of his legs, rather. And he just was a negative, 
fucking Nancy. <laughs> William said of his father that he expected the worst from his son and was rarely disappointed and would beat William with a leather belt while screaming, you'll never amount to anything, which is just probably, I'm going to go ahead and say a bad way to parent. I'm just um, going to go ahead and say that. Not the best. Not the best. You know, not the worst. <laughs> no, it is probably the worst. I mean, he used a belt and I suppose not like a chainsaw. He used a gu- yeah, the <laughs> handle of a gun. He just shot him <laughs> while screaming that. Uh, William Gaines spends four years, and we'll call him Bill, actually. Bill Gaines spends four years in the Army Air Corps and then went to New York University with plans to work as a chemistry teacher. But instead, his father has an untimely death, and therefore he takes over the family business reluctantly, but at the request of his mother. He was definitely very heavily mothered as well. His mother arranged his first marriage for him. Um, I refuse to believe these wild accusations, uncharacteristic of a (laughs) uh, Jewish boy in the 1930s. (laughs) (laughs) Or present. Yeah. Um. He takes his comics business in a completely new direction, and this starts in 1950. So he takes over the business around, what, 1948? He For two years, he sort of struggles a little bit, figuring out what's going on. And then in, in 1950, he's like, you know what? I, let's get into it. Let's do horror, suspense, science fiction, military fiction, crime fiction. We're, we are entertaining comics, and we need uh, editors. He, he brings in a gaggle of people most notably, two people I wanted to highlight, Al Feldstein and Harvey Kurtzman. I think Fel, uh, Feldstein especially had a huge influence on him because they both got together on a love of horror films and uh, stories and things of that nature and wanted to uh, put that into comic book form. They were not the first people to do it, and I'm sure they were inspired by some of the things that came before but still, they were the ones that said, let's go full throttle, gore, gore, gore. Well, here's one of the things that EC is already doing differently because Feldstein and Kurtzman are artists. They started as artists. They are legendary comic artists within their own right. And they also ended up drawing tons of stories for these books. And so now the editor isn't a cranky paper salesman or like someone's nephew or the cranky paper salesman's nephew. These are artists who understand the craft, understand uh, true talent and are willing to work with and foster talent that they recognize so uh among the artists that they end up picking up for these new books are people names you'll recognize like uh, frank frazetta joe kubert uh al williamson wally wood oh fuck we can almost do a whole episode on wally wood uh-huh. uh wally wood is like the kurt cobain of silver age comics artists uh he's the one who invented power girl and gave her those big gazungas <laughs> As well as the legendary 22 panels that always work one shot, which is like one of the most biblically cited uh, pieces of comic art theory. So these are guys, they're young, they're a little bit troubled, they're hungry, they're kind of, uh, they don't really fit elsewhere in the commercial art world, and they're given freedom to go nuts in these stories, assuming, you know, within reason. Yes. So Al Feldstein, born in Brooklyn, New York. He won an award in a poster contest at the 1939 New York World's Fair, which led him to studying art at the High School of Music and Art in Manhattan. He uh, was hired to work at the S.M. Iger Studio, which is a comic book packager, doing general gopher work, as he termed it, uh, while also learning the basics of comic book art, such as inking backgrounds and penciling and inking figures, eventually doing whole pages himself. He starts out as a freelancer and had some dodgy dealings with one comics publisher before approaching Bill Gaines, who had him 
him draw a teenage books, starting a long-lasting relationship that soon led to him being an editor at EC, dictating the tone of a lot of its work. He was able to do stories on topics such as racial prejudice, rape, domestic violence, police brutality, drug addiction, and child abuse. Really intense stuff. And again, also very into the horror genre, and so is Bill Gaines. But also you have Harvey Kurtzman, who is essentially entering from a different angle and doing something very different and wildly impressive to me in uh, Two-Fisted Tales? Uh, Yeah, the war stories thing, when we get into it, I'm very impressed. I had no idea. Mm. It's usually you think of old those old war stories as very like over the top. And Sergeant the, Fury and yeah, his howling commander. American hero mowing mm. down all the enemy soldiers of a different race. And he w- took a very different approach and actually ha- was a huge service to comic books, I think. Um, and in that sense, not even talking about the Mad Magazine stuff, yeah. by the way, which is another incredibly impressive element of what he brought to EC and comics and magazines. So he's born in Brooklyn. Kurtzman is. His father dies at an early age because he was a Christian scientist and he tried to pray away his bleeding ulcer, which, <laughs> yes, which led to his. I shouldn't have laughed. I and know, yet. but and yet, yet. And yet. <laughs> I just like, come on. It's too good. Um, so it led to his mother putting him into uh, and his brother into an orphanage for three months until she could find a job. So definitely grew up poor, grew up very uh, all over the place uh, financially and um, emotionally with his family. He becomes obsessed with comic strips and comic books in the late 30s and would search through his neighbor's garbage cans for their newspapers so he could read as much as he could. He was heavily influenced by Will Eisner's The Spirit, considering it the golden standard at the time, but he won a cartooning contest at 14 and got his first cartoon published in Tip Top Comics, number 36. And this led to a scholarship at the High School of Music and Art. He struggled a lot in the 40s to get work doing a bunch of freelance stuff. Then he gets stationed in North Carolina for World War II doing local stuff there. And that's where he gets works in with uh, Timely for a while. He's, he's working with, he works with Timely, the precursor to Marvel. Uh, and then he hits a dead end doing family-oriented material that did not interest him. He was very much rebellious when it came to what he wanted to bring to comic books, and that's why he ended up being so successful with the way that he innovated on them. Uh, Now, the big turning point for him, influence-wise, is when he picks up a comic book called Crime Does Not Pay, Mm. which was the first-ever true crime comic book series and launched the crime comic genre. This is a book that was recounting Real-ass crimes from real-ass gangsters such as Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly. Kurtzman claimed he had, quote, the same excitement that he felt about the underground comic books of 20 years later. Uh, He ends up shopping his work around to places at the end of the 40s, including some samples to educational comics. And Bill Gaines ends up hooking him up later with some work for EC after the change. This correlated with perfect timing with EC's new trend line of horror, fantasy, and sci-fi comics that launched in the year 1950. New trend essentially meant Bill Gaines is going to step in and take some of the things they already had. They already had, they had some romance books, they had some crimey books, but it it wasn't like what it became. It wasn't the over-the-top uh, horror, gore, true, you know, crime, yeah. sci-fi stuff that they ended up doing. So, um, New Trend is essentially the three horror runs, uh, The Crypt of Terror, Tales from the Crypt, which later became Tales from the Crypt, 
The Vault of Horror, and The Haunt of Fear. So just to break it down, Tales from the Crypt had the Crypt Keeper, who was this, uh, you know, just, I mean, he looked nothing like the Crypt Keeper we know and love. He was just this kind of gross, pockmarked, kind of white-haired guy dressed in, I believe, oh God, I forgot their colors. I forgot their colors. Oh my God, Google it immediately. Uh, See how much fucking shitty reviews you're getting? Don't want stars. Don't want stars, please listen. <laughs> please listen, we're finding the colors. Oh my God. Five stars, but then, then in all caps, right, you should have found the colors though, okay? Or maybe four stars. But please, for the love of God, don't give us one star. Okay, okay, okay. The Crypt Keeper was in a blue robe and was a pockmarked guy with uh, white hair and just like a gross wet mouth. And he was the host of Tales from the Crypt. Uh, the Vault of Horror was uh, hosted by the Vault Keeper, who looked pretty much identical to the Crypt Keeper. Also had long white hair, also had a gross face and a wet mouth, but he had a bigger chin and would usually walk around with his green hood, like kind of whole, uh, over his head. And then... Uh, what was the what was the uh, the other horror one the uh, uh the haunt of fear the haunt the, of fear <laughs> the witch was hosted by the old witch in a red robe and um I'm the old witch <laughs> she'd just have a cauldron and she'd just be like here's the same shit that's from the other books but I'm a witch <laughs> <laughs> to the point where in these in these books they would actually toss it to each other and they're by very quickly they kind of just didn't stick to who hosted what in what book. Famously, there was all these ads in every issue for a chance to get a picture of the real Crypt Keeper or the real Vault Keeper um, that I looked online and for, you know, your nickel that you sent out in the mail, you'd get a black and white print of some person in, with like a fake putty nose ah. in a dimly lit room going like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to give a little background on the horror comic in general, these guys weren't the first people to do it, like I mentioned earlier. In 1947, Avon Periodicals published a one-shot called Eerie, which is known to be the first standalone horror comic book, which comprised of six terrifying tales, such as The Man-Eating Lizards and Mystery of Murder Manor. In 1948, American Comics Group published the first ongoing horror comic series titled Adventures into the Unknown, which ends up running for 174 issues. Now, as I said, Gaines and Feldstein enjoying their personal taste in horror together they use uh, an earlier crime mag that, that was already running on ec called crime patrol to play in this genre with issue number 15 entitled return from the grave this comic contains the first appearance of the crypt keeper which was followed by issue number 16's having more horror than crime stories in it in this crime comic and that led to them completely changing the name to The Crypt of Terror with issue number 17 and later to Tales from the Crypt, just three issues later at number 20. I'm not sure why they ended up changing it from The Crypt of Terror to Tales from the Crypt. Oh, I looked this up. It had something to do with like second class postage rates that like after a certain amount of uh, periodicals shipped, you got a better postage right. rate. That's why they, and if you that's started why they a kept that, new comic, right. it, co it cost more to start sending it through the mail. No, account. I know that's why they changed it from the crime. I'm saying why did did they just feel like... No, that's crypt why the numbering stayed the same. Yes, that's why the numbering stayed the same, but I'm wondering why they went from Crypt of Terror and then three issues later they were like, actually, no, fuck that. We'll go with Tales from the Crypt. Uh, it, because maybe, originally it was called Crime Stories. Maybe, because, uh, I mean, all those books had these very prominent titles and the word horror and Terror, maybe it blurred together, but mm. like horror and crypt, might have, I don't so know. I don't know. But either way, it runs for just 30 issues. Oh, and each 
host corresponded with the color of the title. Yes. That's so yeah, they do the same thing with the co- uh, crime comic War Against Crime. They change it to The Vault of Horror on issue number 12. And, uh, of course, it gets the Vault Keeper. And then the EC series Gunfighter, which was a Western-centric crime comic, was changed to The Haunt of Fear. And that was on issue number 15. The I mean, the main reason they switched everything to horror is that horror was selling, like, hotcakes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, like, a similar thing where this thing that is uh, revolutionarily intoxicating to kids that grown-ups just do not understand and are fearful of how much kids like it. Something, you know, it's like uh, violent video games or uh, sure. comic books. Sure. Uh, uh, EC Comics was the PewDiePie of the 1950s. Ah, uh, don't say that. I mean, literally, though, kids were devouring these things. They were the most popular books on the shelf. Well, also, though, they were, you know, at least their argument was men coming back from the war who were still reading comic books. They didn't want to read maybe superhero stuff, and they wanted to read these crime t- stories or these horror tales, and that was a more interesting read for them. And you know, because I think there were a lot of comic books going around for the soldiers in World War II. It's just the audience of comic books aged, and they weren't putting them down. And so, just by the fact that they offered anything that was more mature than funny animal stories or old Green Lantern, you know, bad Green Lantern with like the blonde hair and the weakness <laughs> against wood. <laughs> Yeah, it was like, it's Go-Go, the talking platypus, and Flash with the dumb helmet. Remember dumb helmet, Flash? And all of a sudden, the story of Legs McKenzie, the seductress who died. But the thing is, they needed all this source material. In order to get all that source material, you've got Gaines going home every night and just devouring sci-fi tales and... And all as much horror as he could get his hands on. He's look at, He's reading H.P. Lovecraft. He's reading Oscar Wilde. He's reading definitely Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Wait, Brad, what is what was that about? Ray Bradbury eventually ends up hitting up EC. They were using so many of his <laughs> stories, and he literally wrote a letter essentially saying like, "Hey." Awesome stories that you guys are, quote, unquote, writing. But, um, by the way, you owe me, like, a ton of fucking money. And they were like, yeah, you're right. And they, like, gave him money, and they ended up actually getting to put, do more, you know, as long as they were giving him... Uh, Several classic issues of these comics uh, have on the cover, like, four thrilling stories by science fiction legend Ray Bradbury. Which is very smart. I mean, yeah. really brilliant. And especially, you know, sci-fi was doing really well at that time. And so it was great to take these stories and visualize them and make them make them interesting. So- oh yeah, for context, like uh, these this this style of story, um, where it's like a, a very like quickly put together short story with a crazy twist at the end, was already uh, de rigueur in uh-huh. pulp fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, from everything from amazing sci-fi stories to you know uh, noir novels, like the idea is like. Hi, I'm a tough guy. Mm, I'm a dame. Er, you're never going to betray me. Ha ha, I'm actually a robot, and I betrayed you. <laughs> like Classic pulp storytelling. So now you also, though, have on Kurtzman's side his war comics, which were very dissimilar, actually, to the over-the-top, like, look inside to see the gore uh, comic books. He starts off with Two-Fisted Tales and later Frontline Combat. They were each... Stories about wars past, wars present. They were deep in the Korean War at the time. 
Uh, he pitched Two-Fisted Tales as being in the same lane as Roy Crane's Captain Easy. Captain Easy is about a, su- a southern adventurer who went on to enlist in the army in World War II and then became a private dick. However, as opposed to the idealism in Captain Easy, he wanted to go for realism. He wanted to tell real war stories, well-researched war stories, and balanced war stories, not stories that were just like clear good versus evil. Frontline combat followed in 1951 um, and covered both modern war and as well as historical accounts, like I just said, Napoleonic campaigns, the Civil War. Kurtzman spends hours in the New York Public Library uh, researching for you know all these details and he 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 interviews GIs he rides aboard a rescue plane he even sends his assistant to ride in a submarine for sound effect research he wanted to smash through the idealization of war seen in the years since World War II because you have to remember World War II really was like oh we're the good guys they're the bad guys you know like that's it period and he and he saw that he was like yes but no in the sense that um, you know, that's not necessarily true in all other wars, right? I mean, by this point, we're in Korea, and that is not as clear-cut. Yes, and he was one of the first people to really tell that story. I was reading a uh, two – I think it was a frontline combat uh, uh, issue, actually, about um, – one of the stories was this guy in a trench ends up face-to-face with a Korean um, – soldier this american soldier and they've got their guns pointed at each other and they're having this standoff and they're like if you shoot me i'll shoot you you know yada 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 and then that slowly turns into them realizing they have some things in common the korean guy had had gone to new york city at one point and they were talking about how great it was and ends up with them showing each other you know pictures of their family and having this real connection in this trench before um shit goes down and he ends up having to shoot the korean guy essentially uh, because uh, you know these American soldiers come running in and everything, but it's this very like uh, surprising thing mm-hmm. to to read in a comic book, especially in 1950, about hey, like the the other side are people too, and even though there's the the ba- the armies and the war and the country, there's also the human, and uh, that's important to recognize in this wartime, especially when things are less cut and dry as they were in the Korean War and later the Vietnam War. But I think he was on the forefront of of that. And uh, to have that b- happening, too, in a comic book that a lot of children were reading, I think it did a really great service to the world, and that's what he viewed his work, where these other guys were like, how do we get the kids to throw that sweet, sweet penny money at us? He was really trying to tell a different story with his comics. I have a quote from Art Spiegelman, uh, you know, the cartoonist who did uh, Mouse um, and, you know, legendary indie comics figure. I think Harvey's work on Two-Fisted Tales and Mad was more important than pot and LSD in the shaping of the generation that protested the Vietnam War. Wow. And he was also known as a very strict taskmaster. He would not allow his artists to deviate from his initial layouts. Also, and this will come into play as to how Mad gets created way slower than the horror guys Mm. so where they're putting out like seven stories he's at the same time he's putting out like three just to give you an indication because of how well researched how meticulous he was when it came to his work you also have weird science and uh, weird fantasy weird science replaces saddle romances (laughs) (laughs) weird science replaces a cowboy fuckbook I don't Did know Weird Science really come from? In my creation. 
But did that even is it real? Did yeah. that even come from the comic, or are you just making I don't a, know a to Z connection? The two things I didn't bother to research whether <laughs> they actually bought the rights to the name Weird Science, uh, but I like I said, so many stories in Weird Science are all about like making yes. or coming upon an idealized woman and not... confronting the twist and the horror mm-hmm. that comes from it. I would there... not be in any way shocked to know that, that the one led yeah. to the other. In in three weird science issues that I shotgunned earlier. Um, <laughs> Literally put the paper in a shotgun and shot it into his head. One issue had a story where a guy uh, had a package delivered to his house by accident uh, from the time mail that was supposed to be for the year 3000 and it came with dehydrated women and he couldn't figure out the right recipe to like get them uh, at the perfect consistency. Hmm. So we had like a huge woman and a tiny woman and an old woman and a baby. And he was like, no, I just want a, uh, my own perfect woman. And yeah. it was, it was a horror thing. One was the snail woman that turned into a dude. And another one was like a, a guy showed up with his old college friend and was like, uh, Hey, listen, Jerry, I know you were always stealing my girls, but you are not going to steal this gal. She's going to be my wife. And the dude's like, I love cuckolding my friend. I'm going to steal his wife. Mm-hmm. And the uh, he runs away with her and he's driving in a car. And the and the this blonde bombshell is like, hey, sweetie, this is real exciting. I never got to. I never felt so free. By the way, can I charge my energy cells? And he's like, what? And she's like. Uh, your friend built me. I was built to be his wife. And he's like, oh, fuck. And he crashes his car because he's too freaked out that he was trying to seduce a robo lady. <laughs> God, these are great books. Yeah, they are good books. And like I said, they replaced the cowboy fuck book, Saddle Romances, in 1950. Um, and Saddle Romances. Apparently, apparently, it was Harry Harrison who really pushed for the sci-fi to come to the now, Lurleen, I want to tell you, I love you more than a fresh stick of pemmican <laughs> on a cold Nebraska night. I don't know. Your left toe fell <laughs> off, and it's making me scared, not horny. Maybe it's the scurvy talking, but <laughs> I want to spend the rest of my life with you, uh, running from various <laughs> sharecroppers. Hey, I can call my mom from here. <laughs> hey, mom, get off the dag roof. That was a Simpsons <laughs> that reference. Was a Simpsons, I'm not, yeah. I cannot claim that as my own. Um, you want to have eight babies, three of them survived? <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, we are east of Eden. <laughs> hey, everybody, it's me, your wishful wizard, Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, Quip. Teeth, let's talk about them. That's right, those little bone nuggets you got sitting in your skull. They're hard to take care of, you know? The routine is a tough habit to get, in a, to get into. It's are you, Did you brush enough? Did you get every side? Did you replace the... When was even the last time you bought your toothbrush? Do you even know? Simplify your morning and evening with a simple electric toothbrush from Quip. Sonic vibrations, you've heard of that before, but Quip sonic vibrations are gentle to sensitive gums. They're not gonna sand down or blast you with this, you know, mic, you know, horsepower. It's gentle sonic vibrations that reinvigorate the mouth and help you clean without brushing too hard. And the two minute timer, it pulses. Every 30 seconds, it triggers to let you know that it's time to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. But what Quip does best is that it makes sure you have fresh brush heads automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. It's a friendly reminder that it's time to brush and it's time to, you know, get things refreshed and get things going. And it comes in just a delightful package. Mine literally just came in 
And it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to get a little mouth present. That sounded gross. Don't use that. But don't just believe me. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and Quip has thousands of verified five-star reviews. The technology, the simplicity, and the convenience. That's why I love Quip, and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com wizard right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash wizard. Yeah, apparently it was Harry Harrison, uh, artist writer Harry Harrison, who really pushed for this the sci-fi stuff. And you already mentioned Wally Wood. He was the title's leading artist. A lot of the stories, just like the other EC tales, they're coming from influences uh here's a good example the island monster Mm. that's king kong uh and then weird fantasy was a companion comic to weird science uh i think it did have some fantasy but it also had uh uh, sci-fi as well another cool thing about these comics is how fucking gonzo the monster the alien and monster designs are in these books these artists cut loose just Things that like you can barely recognize as alive forms. They came up with some truly alien creatures, and it is always um, I it was kind of shocking, like kind of just reading these old timey books and being taken aback at how frightening and truly bizarre these creature designs were. That's great. Oh, can I say another weird science story that I love? Sure. Um, two scientists, clearly inspired by the Schrodinger's cat, um, you know, thing where like you put a cat in a box and mm-hmm. quantum physics happens. Um. <laughs> And they realize they can send a cat forward through time. And they send the cat forward five minutes and it reappears and it's amazing. And they send a cat forward five hours and it's incredible. Five years, 50 years. And then they do it 500 years. And the cat comes back and it's freaking the fuck out. And they're like, whoa, that's what? Why is it so scared? And then they're like, we have to keep going. And it pushes the cat 5,000 years in the future. And the cat comes back dead. Mm. And then they're like, "I something Something in the future is terrible. We have to warn people. We have to figure out what it is. Put it again. Put put it back. Put it. Find a new cat. Put that one five thousand years in the future. They put the cat again five thousand years in the future. Comes back. It's fucking ripped to shreds. It's mm. a bloody mess. Mm-hmm. And even though these stories are quote unquote gory, the coloring isn't that good. So like yeah. it's really just kind of a purpley brown just right. pile. You know, it's not that. Um, they're like. Something's terrible. We we know, like we, this is what science is about: exploring the unknown, finding questions and answers that we may not want to hear. One more time, they send the cat back, and the cat comes back from the future. It's also dead, and standing astride it is a rat with a laser gun. Ah! And the rat looks at the scientist and says, "Excuse me, dear fellows, but we eradicated these pests thousands of years ago, as well as you savage-brained humans, and we would request that you." Kindly desist from the kindly desist from bringing them to our time. <laughs> I will bid you adieu, and then it soups away. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a the cat, the rats in like a little military uniform. It's adorable. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, you also have their line of noir comics that was led by artist Johnny Craig, who was highly influenced by the popular genre of the time, film noir. Uh, They use stories old and new, such as the classic Edgar Allan Poe tale, Cask of Amontillado, uh, for the story Blood Red Wine. Uh, Another big influence was the old radio drama called Suspense. Uh, Now let's talk about They Get Political, which I think is amazing. So, again, and it's really unfortunate what happens to them, spoiler alert, but... Uh, Everything we're talking about is taking place in the span of, like, 
a very four, intense like four, four years. years. Yeah, four years of an amazing creative output uh, spanning all these different subject matter. And yeah, uh, a lot of it was schlocky, but a lot of it was really important. And that's the most frustrating thing about where this whole story ends up going by the end of it. But again, this is the story of American comic books, the origin. This really tells it almost better than our episodes about Marvel superheroes. And- no, Marvel takes place in a world after EC. Yeah. So... You also have shock suspense stories. So racism in America is uh, as big of a thing then um, as it could be. Uh, it's, it's beginning to finally get ousted. Uh, Bill Gaines, he wants to expose it with a line of comics in 1952 referred to uh, by others as preachies. And, uh, you know, you've got like, all right, here's, here's an example. One story involved a Jewish family moving into a predominantly Catholic neighborhood the ringleader of the angry Christian mob. They they try to run the family. He tries to run the family out of town. And at by the end of it, he has the house burned down to drive them all away. And uh, the family was still inside. The whole family, he didn't realize that. It kills everybody inside the house. The leader's mother then reveals to the whole evil Christian mob that he was actually half Jewish this whole time and the town turns on him and the leader gets a taste of his own medicine. It's a lot of those types of morality tales dealing with the KKK, dealing with uh, all sorts of social issues going on at the time that uh, sadly uh, was an end was put to eventually. Now let's talk about MAD, this whole other section of, of EC that... It's unbelievable, like the legacy of Mad Magazine. We'll end up doing a Mad Magazine. Yeah, Mad's Mad's gonna get its own in uh, its own episode, but we do have to talk about the origin story here, which will probably get in a certain way repeated for that episode. Um, So Kurtzman, he's the slowest editor they've got, but he makes really good product. But he also needs to make more money. He is not making as much as the other the other people, uh, the other editors, and he's feeling a lot of pressure financially he's got a family he's got a mortgage and also at the same time he really doesn't like the horror genre he feels like the horror genre feels like the horror genre is doing the everything opposite from what he's trying to do like give children the real story treat them with respect and try to show them the balanced approach to things like issues like war right i will say a lot like an alarming number of the ecr stories it's just some guy being like Oh boy, I can't believe I got away with murder. Yeah. I love being a successful murderer. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> What's happening? I'm gonna open this door, but I'm sure it's not my comeuppance. Oh fuck, it's a ghoulie zombo and he's <laughs> tearing me apart! Oh, I guess murder is bad! Uh so Gaines remembers that Kurtzman initially started out doing humor work, and he pitches a humor mag for him to do to gain some extra scratch. Mad debuts in 1952 with Kurtzman scripting every story for the first 23 issues. And he wanted to, again, target fundamental untruths in the subjects he parodied. He had a parody uh, such as, this is an example, the comic strip Bringing Up Father. He had a parody of that that drew attention to the societal tolerance of domestic violence, which, again, in 1952 is pretty... That's a pretty new concept, I think, in a lot of ways. That late now we look back on old TV shows and Bing, you know, Bing Bang Boom, I'll, you know, sock you to the moon and all that kind of stuff and go like, ew, God. I remember that episode of uh, Leave It to Beaver when uh, 
the beef got drop kicked down a flight of stairs. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fucked up. And he he wanted he was one of the for early people to try to expose that in uh, in a way of, of parody. It, the subtitle for Mad was humor in a jugular vein. And it does okay the first. Oh, it's like jocular vein, but mm. brutal. It does okay, but not too great until the fourth issue, which featured, and we've talked about this before. I forget who we talked about this influencing, but probably Super, Crumb, Super Duper Man, um, which is a parody of Superman and Captain Marvel, and made light of a copyright infringement lawsuit between National Periodicals and Fawcett Comics, which actually led National to threaten. Uh, another lawsuit for the parody and he ended up having to consult with lawyers and uh, essentially they found a precedent that allowed him to skirt around it but he was again one of the early fighters for parody being legal it's weirdly ironic that both national comics then dc comics and mad magazine ended up getting swallowed up by the warner media conglomerate when all was said and done so that issue number four ends up fully selling out and makes mad uh, a household Name by 1954, Mad became the forefront of the massive popularity of satire magazines, the the which led to a ton of imitators and just an unbelievable legacy. And that will we'll talk about that that in our Mad magazine. Episode, uh, it's but. important to note that somewhere along the line, I forget like what exact point, uh, Kurtzman wanting even more freedom and a little bit less uh, kind of breathing down his neck, uh, managed to get the period the the Mad turned from a comic book to a quote-unquote slick book, a yes, magazine, yes. which uh, left them completely free from the Comics Code Authority and all the other kind of uh, shackles yeah. of comic book Not to jump ahead too far, but Mad, I will say, only issue, only thing, only title of EC that survives. Of all the stuff we just talked about, all this amazing stuff that led to so many different great legacies, the, the incredible war stories that were so innovative for the time, the Tales from the Crypt, the legacy of that, I mean, it still stands strong. I mean, it's 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 really fucking nuts. So let's talk about how all of this happened, how all of this went down. And we've definitely talked about the Comics Code before. We talked about it in our Spider-Man two-parter. Uh, but this will be our full just overview of the shit show that was the seduction um, of the innocent. The seduction of the innocent. So, uh, by the way, Jake, thank you so much. Jake sent me a couple of videos, especially that one that was like the 30-minute mm. special report where they like interviewed children about the stories. This was a, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, Mary, well, I was laughing my fucking ass Mary, off. please, I'll, I'll send you the time codes. Play a clip from this thing. Uh, this was an actual new special that aired on television in the 1950s about EC Comics. And you want to give me your name, son? David Freeman. And how old are you? Eleven. Tell me how comic books make you feel, Dave. Well, they don't make me feel too good. A couple of times you read a comic book, I threw up. Can you tell me a story that you read in a comic book? Yes. Uh, I read a story about this baseball game. And this man, he was losing his team for the pennant. And he, uh... uh tried to uh, kill this guy, put some poison on his shoes. And when he went to first base, he uh, cut the guy's foot and poison got into his foot and he died. And the team found out. So they had a night game and then they got this guy and they killed him. And then they used his head for the ball and every time they threw the uh, ball, their blood kept on uh, squirting out. And they used his feet for the bath and they used his insides 
for different bases and uh, outline of the game. I mentioned before that the final responsibility for the control of crime and horror comics rests with you. A few cities have already done something about them, not too many, but a few. Legislation against unfit comic books is possible. Legislation that won't interfere with the rights of a free press. Contact your city officials. Let them know how you feel about the crime and horror comics. And remember this. America is the richest country in the world. We're the world's biggest producer of goods. But our most important commodity, the one commodity we can't put a price tag on, is our children. So things started to get bad around 1948, actually. Um, there were news reports. There was some general public outrage. And uh, it all came to a head in 1948 when Dr. Frederick Wortham, remember the name, he's the fuckface who um, ended comics for a little bit. He was a German-American psychiatrist who is also known uh, for doing good things. He opened a low-cost psychiatric clinic specializing in black teenagers during a time when they were largely denied psychiatric help. He wrote two articles, though. He wrote The Horror in the Nursery and The Psychopathology of Comic Books, along with an article from a separate author titled The Comics Very Funny, uh, which uh, attempted to expose issues that they were finding. And they were having issues with superhero comics, stuff like that. Obviously, this is 1948. This is before EC is in full swing. The battle was being waged initially before EC even was like in their heyday. Um, but it led to the Association of Comics and Magazine Publishers being formed. Uh, with it's whenever kids obsess over something, whenever uh -huh. something resonates so hard that especially if violence is involved. Yeah, it's just know? anything that you don't understand that your kid is fixated by has to be nefarious. Right. And in the case of stuff like maybe Fortnite and it's like addictive gambling uh, Skinner right. box things or uh, weird YouTube videos where it's pregnant Elsa, you should at least be a, like anything that can capture the psyche of a kid that hard. Should at least be looked at, but holy shit, did but they go outrage, overboard. Yeah. yeah, is always, and it's always going to be a thing, especially where there's money to be made. Outra and outrage, there's always money to be made, right? So um, the founding members of the Association of Comics and uh, Association of Comics and Magazine Publishers, one of the founding members was Bill Gaines and uh, Harold Moore of Famous Funnies. There were many other publishers and distributors. They release a publisher's code in an attempt to avoid external regulation. This is actually something right now that's happening in video games with the loot boxes that you just mentioned and the gambling. And there's a lot well, of in the 90s, the ESRB was the exact same thing. They yeah. tried to get wriggle out of the fact that the government was going to the last thing people want in these industries, video games, comic books is government movies. and yeah. movies, government intrusion because it's they don't understand it and they're going to try to change it in ways that are ridiculous and um, based on uh, ignorance. So I think that's why there's always a scramble. Like, okay, we'll fix it. We'll fix it. Uh, publisher's code. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll make all these rules under this code, and you can only release stuff with the stamp of approval and blah, 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 blah. So um, some of the things that they were regulating were um, – forbidding portrayals of crime that might, quote, throw sympathy against the law or, quote, weaken respect for established authority and prohibited, uh, quote, ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group. They also promised not to publish sexy, wanton comics, and they wanted to divorce 
to not be, quote, treated humorously or represented as glamorous or alluring. All these weird moral things going around at the time. Um, and it didn't really get upheld. EC Comics ends up terminating their participation in 1950. So it's not until 1954 that Wortham puts out a book called... The Seduction of the Innocent. <laughs> which argues that depictions of violence, sex, drug use, etc. in comics encouraged similar behavior in children. And they focused on these depictions specifically in EC Comics. They, But they also leaned into sexual themes such as the actual, and this is true, the bondage subtext in Wonder Woman. They also, um, he was freaking out about Batman and Robin coming off as gay partners. And by Just the way- Just because a man and a younger boy sleep in the same bed together with no relation. <laughs> but also, I mean, this is at a time when- uh, homosexuality was still categorized as a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's just this over-the-top reaction, and it gets the attention of Senator Estes Kefauver, uh, who read this book and uh, who was actually a mob hunter during that time. He was going after the mob, and at that time, the mob was involved in the distribution of comics and magazines. And he had Wortham appear before the Senate Subcommittee Committee of Juvenile Delinquency, at which Wortham claimed... This is the most ridiculous thing I've found in my research. Wortham apparently claimed that the comic book industry was potentially more dangerous for children than Hitler. Jake, you're Jewish. What's your reaction to that? Oh, there's <laughs> there's one thing I know about the comics industry. It's that <laughs> hostility towards Jews. <laughs> Definitely what I th when I think of the 1950s and 60s in New York comics publishing, <laughs> just uh, anti-Semitism left and right. Yeah, this is when things really get out of control. Uh, so Bill Gaines actually gets to testify um, in front of the Senate committee. And uh, Bill, at the time, had a uh, legendary speed addiction. Um, he was <laughs> suffering from a cold and was hopped up on cold pills in addition to the speed. And he was denied a chance to uh, testify before Wortham. So Wortham actually got to go first and just cleared the fucking deck with just uh, horrifying anecdote and, and co you know, color glossies and just zoom ins and all the most gross things ever. And so it's kind of this uh, basically gains. He does admirably. He does really well to try and defend himself. But uh, in the in the kind of uh, scandalized world of news media, only the worst quotes from him got uh, got published and got uh, circulated. So uh, these are quotes from his testimony. Uh, this is Bill Gaines in front of the Senate. Uh, I publish comic magazines in addition to picture stories from the Bible. Uh, I also published horror comics. I was the first publisher in the United States to publish these horror comics. I am responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. This is a matter of personal tastes. It would be as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimeness of love to a frigid old maid. <laughs> so already throwing shade. <laughs> Um, this I is, love it. I kind of love this guy. Yeah. Dr. Wortham provoked me. Dr. Wortham, I am happy to say I have caught him in a half-truth, and I am very indignant about it. He said there is a magazine now on the stands preaching racial intolerance. The magazine he is referring to is my magazine. What he said, as much as he said, was true. There does appear the terms spick, dirty Mexican. But Dr. Wortham did not tell you what the plot of the story was. This was a series of stories designed to show the evils of race prejudice and mob violence. In this case, prejudice against Mexican Catholics. 
Previous stories in the same magazine have dealt with anti-Semitism and anti-Negro feelings, the evils of dope addiction, and the development of juvenile delinquents. This is one of the most brilliantly written stories that I have ever had the pleasure to publish. I was very proud of it, and to find it being used in such a nefarious way made me quite angry. I'm sure Dr. Wortham can read, and he must have read this story to have counted what he said he counted. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous quotes uh, from this testimony was a back and forth where the senator uh, was arguing with him about the uh, horror of a woman's like bloody head being held by a murderer carrying. That an is axe. one of, and that is one of the more famous covers of EC Comics. It is a pretty fucking crazy. It is a pretty raw ass cover. And Bill Gaines is stuck, kind of like mumbling and just being like, "Well, you know, for a horror comic, it's pretty tasteful. Like we could have had more." <laughs> goop coming out of her neck stump <laughs> like it's i'm paraphrasing but like that's the quote that got circulated that's what dug his grave was him just trying to be like okay yeah it's a woman's head but like think how much grosser a woman's head could be <laughs> and like the guy in the story goes to jail for cutting off that woman's head mm-hmm. and and i mean you gotta understand this is this stuff's being broadcast on television it gets a front page article in the new york times and so again much like the publisher's code uh, before it, and by the way, the publisher's code is based actually on the 1930s uh, production code that Hollywood. Went the Hayes through. code. Yeah, so there, th- this has a long lineage that uh, that goes back uh, a long time. So, so they scramble and they get together the Comics Code Authority, which was formed, uh, uh, headed by Charles F. Murphy, a specialist in juvenile juvenile delinquency. And it had this stamp of, of approval that you probably would recognize if you've read old comic books. It's that little, it looks like a stamp. It's um, like the like a it's mail a big letter stamp. A with like the two C's mirrored on both mm-hmm, sides and mm-hmm. it's like, approved by the Comics Code Authority. And, and so the summer after the hearing, 15 publishers go out of business with Mad Magazine, the only surviving title of EC. Uh, Essentially, it is like, distributors if it doesn't have that stamp of approval will not put the comic book on their stand stuff like pharmacies uh you know supermarkets any place where you used to see the old wire spinner rack or newsstands uh, all the places where you know you used to buy comics before the direct market came into play just would not deal with anything that didn't have the stamp because it wasn't worth the headache from parents groups and other people so these are the things that are being cut again like before uh representation of Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions in such a way as to create disrespect or established authority. That is banned. Also, uh, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil. Uh, this is – I hate this shit. This makes me furious. Uh, well, they, it also cleared the way for superhero stories yeah. to take over comics yeah, because 100%. those stories had this stuff. Yeah. Uh, they prohibited excessive violence and lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations with a full ban on – get this – Full ban on vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and zombies, and the words horror and terror. Specifically, they went after words that are the names of EC comic books. That was a very, it seemed very aimed. I think they even banned the word weird just to just to, to get EC out of business. Sexual depictions were banned and enforced uh, the emphasis on the sanctity of marriage and... Um, yeah, they, they you know, Gaines was forced to submit, just like everybody else, to the new demands of the Comics Code. And, uh, you know, he at least didn't go down without a fight. Do you want to talk about Weird Fantasy and the, I'm sorry, rather, uh, Judgment Day? 
Uh, which this is, is a re- actually a reprint of a different weird fantasy story that they altered a little bit. But. So this is a famous anecdote from the dying days of EC Comics. But uh, in 1956, in Incredible Science Fiction number 33, literally the last proper comic book that they ended up publishing before they tried a bunch of like weird alternative formats to get around the code. What you just said. The, what did you refer to them as? What Mad Magazine essentially became? It was like a rag or a slick. Or Slicks were magazines. Slicks, yeah. Um, oh, can I? Oh, I tried to like uncomic book the comics to try to get around this. Pictofiction yes. was a system they invented where like they still had artists like Wally Wood and Frank Frazetta doing cool drawings, but it was told like more amongst a pulp fiction y yes. uh, written story. But those thing. did not succeed. <laughs> One of the uh, ro- editors at EC went rogue and created this. Uh, Incredible pushback against the uh, regulations uh, called Are You a Red Dupe? that basically laid out in very angry language, uh, the group most anxious to destroy comics are communists. <laughs> and in America, we can still publish comic magazines, newspapers, slicks, books, and the Bible. We don't have to send them to a censor first. Not yet, for there are some people in America who would like to censor, who would like to suppress the comics. It isn't that they don't like comics for them, they don't like comics for you. It's like brutal how angry this thing is. Um, but uh, you back to Judgment Day. So in the last comic they ever published, uh, there was a story that they reprinted called Judgment Day. Judgment Day is a very ham-fisted morality tale in which a astronaut lands on a planet full of robots. And the astronaut says, we here from the Earth Galactic Federation planted the seeds of robotic life here thousands of years ago. We like sent you the materials and we let you to your own uh, devices. And now we wish to see if you have evolved and if you can join us as a proper like culture. And this robot is like, oh, yes, of course. We've done so many great things. Look at our buildings. And they're like, oh, yes, excellent construction. You have mastered architecture. And like, and look at our roads and auto cars and like perfect like uh, transitions. Uh, tell me, what happened to the blue robots we sent? And the robot is like, oh, I guess they, well, they all live down in Blue Town. <laughs> and they're like, what happened to the roads here? Well, you know, the blue robots need to be separate, lest they get uppity and cause trouble. And they're like, well, what about the blue schools? And they're like, oh, well, here in the blue schools, uh, we didn't, you know, they're not as important as the uh, as us orange robots. Our orange schools are better, but we let them have this school. <laughs> and they're like, so don't you see? The blue robots are the same as you. They are robots. We built you to be the same, and yet... You treat them so poorly. And the orange robots are like, what? This is just the way it's always been. And the astronaut says, like, you are not ready to join the galactic civilization. You have much to learn, and hopefully in the future you will be ready to join us. And in the last panel, the astronaut takes off his helmet to look at the beautiful night sky. And hold on, let me read from the thing. Inside the ship, the man removed his space helmet and shook his head. And the instrument lights made beads of perspiration on his dark skin twinkle like distant stars. It was a black guy! It was a black guy all along! It was about racism! Blue robot, orange robot, black skin, white skin, we're all the same people! We're all the goddamn same! So they sent it in for approval, and fuckface Judge James Murphy, who's the administrator of the Comics Code Authority, goes outside of their authority... And says, uh, yeah, yeah, just um, you got to take out the part where he's a black guy. <laughs> the point of the story. 
That's where we're at. You like it is just so obnoxious. And, and they, then after getting reamed by, I think it was Feldstein and uh, Feldstein gets p- pissed. He's yelling at the guy. Then he's he and then Bill Gaines calls him up and literally, I think, tells him to fuck off. And uh, hangs up on him, right? Uh, and they just run the story. According to Feldstein, interviewed for this is I'm reading right from Wikipedia. Please don't hate me. Uh, from the book Tales of Terror, uh, he recollected talking to Judge Murphy. So he said he can't be a black person. So I said, for God's sakes, Judge Murphy, that's the whole point of the goddamn story. <laughs> so he said, no, it can't be a black. Great. Good. Uh, already yeah, a great yeah, guy. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, Bill Gaines called him up later and raised the roof. And finally, uh, they said, well, OK, fine. He can be black, but like make sure he's not sweaty, <laughs> which full on like it's all on display right there with yeah, that request. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> Bill said, fuck you and hung up. <laughs> Uh, uh, they oh, end up running it, but they, that's the last uh, story that they ran. You can find uh, copies of it. I understand. I sold it as being very ham-fisted, but for a 1950s comic, it's very touching. It's kind of a a window into what like the progressive liberal narrative was against racism at the time. And you can even find in the same uh, scans the letters page from when it was originally run. And uh, it's people who live in... Uh, Augusta, Georgia, and um, uh, here's here's one from C. Ross Chamberlain. <clears throat> I am a Southerner, born in North Carolina, lived over half of my 15 years in Texas, and before moving, uh, I had never been above the Mason-Dixon line. I believe Judgment Day is the finest story you have yet printed in your magazines mm. to date. Uh, schools asked for copies of this story to spread with their kids. Uh, you know, this is uh, another one. Uh, Dear editors, I am not prejudiced, so I was not offended by Judgment Day, but some of my best friends were. They even went so far to say as those bleep bleep lovers. The North and South are like they are, so why not leave us alone? Augusta, Georgia, someone sent Mm. that in. So Kurtzman, after a few years, Mad's the only thing left. He leaves Mad. And Gaines is it's essentially because Gaines refused to give him his 51% control of Mad Magazine that he demands, so he pieces out. Gaines ends up selling the company as EC Publications, Inc. in the 1960s and later was absorbed into the same corporation that purchased DC Comics and Warner Brothers, which is called Kenny National Company. That's its own story. Tales from the Crypt, of course, Enduring Legacy uh, and Vault of Horror, actually. They both got movies in the early 70s. Creepshow, the anthology horror films, were definitely heavily inspired by it. You also have HBO doing Tales from the Crypt in the mid-90s that brings it back to life. There have also been several reprint collections of EC Comics that maintain their presence in the public eye. And uh, over time, the comics code starts to lighten up. They updated in the 70s to allow things like the sometimes sympathetic depiction of criminal behavior and corruption among public officials. The oh, 70s is when you notice uh, Spider-Man finally got to fight a vampire and a werewolf. Yes, vampires, ghouls, and werewolves were reintroduced. Uh, and also, and if you want to hear more about this, you also during this time have the fight that was uh, waged by Stan Lee over a story in Spider-Man that involved a negative depiction of drug use Uh, and uh, so the depiction of narcotics or drug addiction uh, was as long as it was depicted in a negative light brought uh, brought back into play the code was uh, largely abandoned in the 2000s as finally advertisers no longer gave a shit about the content in terms of uh, comics code approval and uh, in terms of their decision to work with comic publishers more specifically more comics were being sold from direct market stores who Mm. didn't give a shit 
and this was during the comic book boom, so more units were being sold at forever. Uh, but did, oddly enough, though, uh, Archie Comics still has the comics code thing. But oh, that's so weird. And Archie, they had to do a lot of revisionist work on their stuff even they had to like alter cleavage and do things oh archie was a spank book yeah throughout the 1950s yeah that was like a super sexual thing so in 2010 a librarian and information science professor named carol tilly investigates wortham's research and she finds his conclusions to be largely baseless she wrote wortham manipulated overstated compromised and fabricated evidence especially that evidence he attributed to personal clinical research with young people for rhetorical gain. He did it for the money. Some of the criticisms of his work included using a sample of young people who were already mentally troubled for his research results and manipulating statements from adolescents by neglecting some passages and rephrasing others to better suit his thesis and therefore sell more books. I hate this guy. He did some good things, actually, uh, but I fucking hate this guy it so was, much. Yeah, it's he's a he's more complicated than the comic book boogeyman. Uh, his research was necessary in helping uh, the Brown v. Board of Education yeah, decision. Yeah, uh, it's it's life's complicated. Yeah, People life is complicated. complicated. But that that is just such a uh, without Wortham, the story of comic books would be completely different. Does that mean we wouldn't have? billion dollar blockbuster marvel movies <laughs> maybe instead we'd be what we'd be lining up outside the block for the crypt keeper yeah. v vault keeper <laughs> end game <laughs> uh yes that's exactly what i'm saying okay um and i think that's it that's the story of ec comics the terrifying tale of the crypt keeper please seek out some of these stories and read them on your own because it's fascinating it's hilarious it's a genuine glimpse into a uh, era of comics that uh, you know, people don't really think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a blast doing this episode, This uh, doing the research for this episode, and recording the actual episode. It, w- it was really fascinating, and I think necessary for any comic book academic to really unpack these things and understand it. It makes so everything else make so much more sense. The only thing more fun than researching reading EC Comics was the time I murdered that old man for his All money right. and put his body in the old well. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? And remember, kids... Do do drugs. <laughs> and always keep bruising. And whizzing and what. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more.
Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.